Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. So interesting topic this weekend. Are you ready? Now, as we get into this, we're in this series called Threads. Okay, we're looking at kind of these big reoccurring themes that happen throughout the Bible. What we're going to cover today is the spiritual realm. Now, some of us, I just, I'll acknowledge some of us, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, you're spiritually unresolved, you may hear some of what we're saying today and go like, that's in the Bible? It is. It is. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover the whole topic. The Hebrew word would be Elohim. Elohim are spiritual beings, okay? And they start as a theme in Genesis chapter 3. We're introduced to these spiritual beings, and then they happen intermittently throughout the Bible. You see a lot of this activity in the life of Jesus, and the book of Revelation is filled with that. So before we jump in, I wanted to show you a Bible project video because I thought it did a great job of synthesizing and maybe kind of focusing our thoughts so that we can begin to explore this topic. All right, here we go. If you pick up the Bible, you don't have to read far before you meet the main character, God. Yeah, he appears in the Bible's first sentence. And then later on page one, you meet the humans. And there you have it. The two main players in the Bible, God and humans on the stage of our world. Well, not quite. In the Bible, there's actually a way bigger cast of characters than just humans and God. Like who? I mean the figures called the Elohim in the Hebrew scriptures. Angels, the Satan, demons, they're all over the story. Oh, right. Spiritual beings. To be honest, I've never really known what to do with them. It's all kind of weird. And unfortunately, almost all of our modern conceptions about these beings are based on serious misunderstandings. All right, so let's talk about spiritual beings in the story of the Bible. So first thing we have to do is reorient ourselves to how the ancient biblical authors saw the world. On pages one and two of Genesis, God brings order to a watery wilderness, separating the skies above from the land below. Right, this is earth where we live. And then there's the heavens high above, which they saw as God's domain. But in the Bible, these spaces are not separate. They overlap. And in fact, the Garden of Eden is described throughout the Bible as a high mountain garden where heaven and earth are one. Cool. So that's the world. Now it needs some creatures. God first creates and appoints the sun, moon, and stars to rule the day and night. You mean the giant flaming gas balls in the sky? Well, that's how you think about them. But the biblical authors, like all ancient people, saw them as heavenly creatures that are glorious, shining bright, and high above. Which is strange. I don't think of stars as creatures. Well, you don't. But for the biblical authors, the stars formed their categories for thinking and talking about a spiritual reality that exists alongside ours. And it's a different kind of reality, just like the sky is different from the land. And it's populated with creatures that have different kinds of bodies, shiny spiritual bodies. Okay, so almost all ancient cultures thought of the stars as divine beings, including the ancient Israelites. 
But the biblical authors make clear that these beings are not God. Rather, they're images of God. Their glory and high status is a reflection of the Creator's glory and status, and they exist to serve His purposes. So the stars symbolize beings who are like God's heavenly staff team. Right. Now let's go back, because after God appointed the heavenly host, He also appointed another type of creature. The humans. Yeah, in Hebrew they're called Adam, which sounds like the Hebrew word for dirt because that's what they're made of. So glorious rulers above and hairy sapiens below. But then comes the great twist. God tells the lowly humans that they are to rule all of creation. He invites them to rise above their dirty origins and share in God's glory as his partners. So God wants to rule the world through humans and not the spiritual beings. Exactly. This is how the poet of Psalm 8 understood the stories of Genesis. He looked up at the stars and says, What is humanity that you consider him? You made him lower than the spiritual beings, but crowned him with glory and divine majesty. This is humanity's high calling, to rule creation in the love and power of God. Very cool. But not everyone's happy. We're introduced to a spiritual being who doesn't want humans to rule. So he tricks them into thinking that they can get divine power on their own terms. They're deceived and they take the opportunity. So they're banished from the Eden mountain, exiled to wander the earth and return to the dust. This snake is bad news. Yeah, and as you read on, you discover that he's part of a spiritual rebellion that follows the humans outside of Eden, and things get worse from here. The humans still desire to rule, so they start a new project. Yes, in the Bible, this is called Babylon. It's the anti-Eden, where human and spiritual rebels join together to elevate themselves back to their former glory. And so, with all that in mind, we can now appreciate the full cast of characters that we meet in the biblical story. God, humans, and all of the spiritual beings. Exactly. And so here's a preview of what we're going to explore. We'll learn more about God's heavenly staff team called the Divine Council. Then we'll talk about angels and cherubim, key figures in the spiritual realm. And then one particular angel called the Angel of the Lord. We'll also look at the spiritual rebels in the Bible, connected with the Satan and demons. And finally, we'll see how this whole story leads to Jesus, the one who overcomes evil, reunites heaven and earth, so that a new humanity can partner with God. So I hope that your interest is piqued. Are you ready? All right, let's jump into this. I just have to tell you from the beginning, we're going to cover a huge amount of territory, and this is simply cursory. It would be in your best interest to dive more deeply into what the text says about these. Um, I think there are, there's a lot of writing out there. Some of it I would not suggest, but let's go back. We start here with what does the Bible say about this spiritual reality? Here's point number one. I think this just helps set us up. Point number one is this, is there is more than meets the eye. There is more than meets the eye. What do I mean by that? We live in an incredibly advanced Western culture where science has explained so much and we would have a tendency, okay? We would have a tendency to not even contemplate or think about this whole idea of a spiritual realm because there are just so many answers that we can find. So um, let me give you an example. Many parts of the world, or even in all of human history, if you went back, they would associate the spiritual realm with everyday happenings. It was something they thought about all the time. Example would be, okay, if you're wondering, is it going to rain? Like, we really need rain. 
what would we do? We would go to like your weather app and we would consult a meteorologist and we would have satellite images of fronts and moisture moving our way and we can predict whether or not it will rain. Other places in the world or any ancient culture whatsoever, they would think the spiritual realm needs to be consulted if we need rain. And so you would do a dance or you would like sacrifice something or you're thinking that the spiritual realm has to do with everyday life that interacts with us. So here's an example. I think this, you can find yourself in this text and it'll help us to understand, yeah, we need to be cognizant and aware that there is always more than meets the eye. We're gonna read from 2 Kings and here's the setting. There's a prophet named Elisha, one of the famous prophets of the Old Testament, and he has a servant, this guy that works with him, and they are in a city, and the city is surrounded by an enemy army overnight. So a massive enemy army surrounds them. Elijah is not nervous. The, the, the servant is terribly nervous, and it's because Elisha knows that there's more than meets the eye. Let's read this together from 2 Kings 6. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army, okay, a tangible real reality with horses and chariots has surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Elisha the prophet says, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So the servant looks out and is thinking, what are you talking about? We're in a little fortified fortress, but we see this massive army. I see chariots, I see horses, I hear swords rattling. And Elisha says, oh no, no, there's more than meets the eye. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord. So help him to perceive and see what's truly happening so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So I, I think this helps us to understand that in our world, we so easily dismiss, we don't even think about this, that you have your issue, we have our problems, we're in our conflict, and we look around and we can see the physical realities. Okay, there's sickness, there's my finances, there's this conflict I have with people, those are realities. And I think what God would say to us often is, hey, there's always more than meets the eye. There's a spiritual realm out there. And so my prayer would be for all of us that the Lord would open our eyes so that we realize, hey, there's a spiritual realm out there that is always significant and God is always bigger than whatever the complexities in life are that we face currently, the things that intimidate us. So just to start with that, no, there is more than meets the eye. There is a spiritual realm, which culturally we don't think about very often. Okay, point number two, let's talk a little bit about the serpent, the serpent. So. There's this category of spiritual beings called the Elohim. It's a Hebrew word. So the spiritual ones. Sometimes, some of us might be a little confused, like I thought that was a name for God. Well, it can be if it's the Elohim of Elohims. So sometimes the Old Testament calls him the Elohim of Elohim, meaning he is the ultimate of the spiritual beings. But this classification is called the Elohim. And the first one we're introduced to is this character known as 
the serpent. And we see him early on in Genesis chapter three. In fact, we'll just read a couple of words here. Now the serpent was more crafty. Okay, so crafty speaks of intelligence, but a bent and manipulative intelligence, okay? The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And boom, we just start to have questions, right? So why did you make him God? And why did you make him crafty? And then there's all these questions that we don't have answers to. So was the serpent this crafty animal? By the way, who loves snakes? Put your hands down, people. Okay, like, oh, I know people that collect snakes. I don't get it. Like, I don't even like cats, but just have a cat, for goodness sake. So was this a crafty animal that the devil animated? Or was it... Like this is the introduction of the devil himself. We, we don't exactly know, but he's a reality. He's there. And he begins his work in Genesis chapter three. So the next question, I get asked this all the time. So where did he come from? Where did the serpent, the devil, the Satan, where did he come from? And here's what I'll say to you. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. There's something of God seems to create only beings with free will. There seems to be some inferences through the Old Testament and then actually even through Jesus that at one time there was some sort of cosmic rebellion amongst the Elohim. Um, but I have a lot of questions about this. Genesis chapter 6, these Nephilim, which are these Elohim that take on material bodies and reproduce these giant half spiritual, half human beings in the land. We don't have great answers to all of that. Here's what most theologians speculate is they go to two passages of scripture, one from Isaiah 14, one from Ezekiel 28. Both of these passages are speaking about real human beings who lived and walked the earth. Both of them have built tremendous empires they're the kings of, Sire, of Sidon and the kings of Tyre. So Tyre and Sidon. And in Isaiah chapter 14, this is what we read. We know it's about a real person who actually lived, but some of the language, as we read it, you'll go like, well, that could give us a hint, at least the motivations behind the Satan. Let's read Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven Morning start. Now, this is a tough one right here. So in Greek, Hillel, or excuse me, in Hebrew, Hillel, in Greek, phosphorus, which we get our word phosphorus from. It means the uh, light one. It's what they called the uh, planet Venus. So if you're in the Middle East, the planet Venus, certain times of year, rises just before dawn. It is the brightest star in the sky. And so it would mean something like is illuminating, right? Something very bright draws your attention. Son of the dawn, you've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly. Notice all the eyes on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphron. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. 
So we'll read that. That was about a real human being that lived, but perhaps it could be inferring to what happened at one time with the Satan. Ezekiel chapter 28, very similar. This is about another king, son of man. Take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub type of angel. We'll get to that in a moment. For so I ordained you, you were On the holy mount of God, you walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. And it goes on after that. So are these about the origins of the Satan? Maybe. We're not exactly sure. Okay, so we can't know with absolute certainty the origins of Satan, but I want to get on to the things that we do know, okay? Here's some things that we definitely know. One, we know something about his nature, okay? This is important for us to know, and this is clear through the Bible, his nature. And I think his nature is best described through the titles that are used for a name for him throughout the Bible, Here's the first thing we know about his nature. His first title is the devil, okay, the devil, which is a Greek word, which means the slanderer, okay, the slanderer. So it's an action that he's involved in. So have you ever had anybody who slandered you? Okay, if someone is slandering you, what are they saying? They're bringing up the most negative things that they possibly can about you in settings where it is just not appropriate. It may have kernels of truth, but they've emphasized it. So the slander, that is what the enemy does. As he wants to point his fingers at human beings and he wants to say things that are not true or things that are no longer true and let everybody know about it. He also wants to do the same thing towards God. He wants to slander God, making us doubt whether or not God is true, whether God is loving, whether God is kind. So that's his first title. The next title is the Satan. So we oftentimes just use this proper name Satan, but it is the accuser is what it actually means. It's not a name. It is a title for what he does. And it's the adversary, the adversary. So he's the one who stands in opposition to God. So if God is about healing and hope and redemption and restoration, the enemy is about interrupting all of those activities. He stands in an adversarial position towards God and towards God's people. Here's a third title that tells us about his nature. Lucifer. Now, this one is a little bit more difficult. It's mentioned only once, and it's in the Isaiah passage that we just read. Hallel in Hebrew, phosphorus or esphosphoros in Greek means the shining one, the word that they used for the planet Venus when it rose. Means morning star. Now, it's not a title. We've adopted it and we probably shouldn't have adopted it because actually in the book of Revelation, Jesus is also referred to as the morning star. And in that instance, it's been a long, cold night. And as Jesus emerges, it's hope that dawn is coming and he's the morning star. 
But what this whole idea gets at is this. Okay, the image, if I, if I just said, picture the devil in your mind, it's like a Halloween costume, right? Um, somebody who smells like smoke, breath smells like sulfur, red, like unpleasant face, pitchfork tail, right? So here's what we do have to understand. The, the vast majority of our mentality when we think about the enemy is probably, it's derived from Dante's Inferno. It really is. The Dante who wrote and then illustrated this whole reality of a spiritual realm, he paints the devil in a certain way and it's always unpleasant and like, oh, when you look at him, you're like, I know who you are, <laughs> right? You're the bad guy. This whole idea is this, is that the problem, if this does refer to the Satan, is that he doesn't smell of smoke and he doesn't scare you when you see him. There's actually something that is glimmering about him. There's something that is intriguing. There's something where he's operating incognito and you might perceive it something beautiful when in reality it is anything but beautiful. So we've got the devil, we've got the Satan, we've got Lucifer. And then the last title used for him in the Bible is the accuser, the accuser. We find this really developed in the book of Job, which we've never studied together, but we will someday. It's probably the oldest book written in the, in the Bible. Or Job, who's this terribly righteous man, he's tried to live his life well, who shows up? The accuser and begins to accuse him and begins to question his integrity. And the whole thing is like a courtroom battle before God. And here's what the accuser says. Job doesn't really love you, God. Watch this. Let me take away his wealth. Let me destroy everything that he loves. He, so he's accusing Job. And we know that that's one of his titles. And guess what he does today? He accuses. He wants to point fingers. So that's a little bit about his nature. Let's talk about his tactics, okay? His tactics, what do his tactics look like? If I had to say, here's the top thing that the devil or the Satan wants to do is to do this. When you become a follower of Jesus, you've submitted your life to him, you're reconnected with your creator. And here's another thing, or the first thing he wants to do is he wants to separate you from God. He wants there to be distance. He wants there to be tension between human beings and their savior. When we find him first introduced in Genesis chapter three, what is he doing? He's trying to separate Adam and Eve from their creator. He's trying to create distance instead of dependence, instead of trust, instead of love. He's trying to create a wedge that drives them apart. And he is operating in the same manner in your life and my life. He's trying to create space between me and God. And we just have to realize, most of the time we think, well, what Satan's really trying to do is trying to make me eat the whole half gallon of ice cream at midnight or the entire box of Oreos. He may or may not be involved in that, but I can tell you what he is involved in, trying to make you be separated from your creator. That's his first tactic. Second tactic 
is interruption and interference. Interruption and interference. Take a peek at Daniel 10 sometime. Daniel is praying. It's a very momentous time. And as he prays, his prayers go on and on and on for actually 21 days. And eventually an angel shows up and says, I would have been here sooner, but here's what was happening. There was a spiritual force, a prince of Persia. So one of these Elohim that works in concert with the Satan, and he was keeping me from being able to address your prayers and answer the prayers. One of the tactics of the enemy is to interrupt and interfere, to bring confusion and dissonance into our lives and into our world. His third tactic would be this, to lie, to distort the truth, to kill, steal, and destroy. Okay, we just would use the word destruction. He wants to bring destruction into human beings' lives. He wants to bring us to be a pile of rubble, rubble, rubble. In fact, John 10, 10, Jesus says this. He says, the thief, referring to Satan, comes only to kill and steal and kill and destroy, but I have come, they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus says, here's what he wants to do. He wants, you to, he wants to kill your hope, your dreams. He wants to destroy your life. He wants you to be wrapped up in addictive behavior, to destroy your relationships, to destroy your integrity. That's his job. Jesus says, I've come to do the opposite, to create full and beautiful life. Another one of his tactics is to intimidate, to intimidate. As I was walking through this, the weeks of preparation, I knew this, that one of the things the enemy wants to do is he wants some of you to walk away today and be more afraid of the devil than ever before. Because that's what he likes to do. I love what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind, because your enemy, he's, he's talking to the people in the church, your enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. You ever heard a lion roar? Like it is a big sound. <laughs> he says, this is what the enemy does. He wants to roar. He wants to make noise. He wants you to experience fear. He's looking for someone to devour. So one of his tactics is intimidation and making us fearful. The next tactic is to accuse, condemn, and discourage. This is a huge thing that the enemy tries to do. To accuse me, to make me feel shame, embarrassment, make me feel like I can't be forgiven, that God could not love me, that I'll never change, to condemn me where I walk around identifying, I take my sin and my failure and I couple it with my identity. He wants to discourage. He wants us to be in this place where we lose hope. Here's what we read about him in the book of Revelation. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who does what? Accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. I love that. We just have to understand. He, he's actively trying to accuse us. The third thing, or the last thing that we see that often happens is this, is to take shortcuts, to take shortcuts. In Matthew chapter four, we read about the temptation of Jesus. 
And on three separate issues, the Satan comes to Jesus and he says, he just makes little distortions of the truth. And he says this, Jesus, rather than you having to live your life in obedience to God, go through the cross, suffer, die. Why don't you just take a shortcut? Why don't you take the path of least resistance? Why, do you, why don't you not obey the Father, but make this happen by yourself? And he is actively trying to get us to not walk a path of obedience, to help us try to find the path of least resistance. And then lastly, I'd say this, he is behind. He animates the worst in us as human beings. He animates, he breathes life into it. So yes, human beings make decisions. I want to tell you, if you watch the news, I think having your eyes open, that second Kings passage, is when you read about uh, genocide and war and starvation and human slavery, you read about racism, ethnic cleansing, all that, you, we have got to know that there is an enemy who is animating, breathing life into these hateful things, telling cultures that you are superior to another culture, telling people you're threatened, you need to annihilate your threats. When you watch the news, the worst in human history, the enemy is behind all of that. That is part of a spiritual battle that we are involved in here in our world. Okay, so the enemy. We don't know a lot. We don't know exactly where it comes from. We know what his titles are and we know what his tactics are. Um, we also know that he has these cohorts known as these demonic forces. Here's a good thing. Point number three is you got to know that God's not alone. Okay, God is not alone. There are these different Elohim that are involved. The first is the divine council. Every time you get a snapshot of the heavenly, it's usually referred to as the throne room of God, God's not alone. There are these fascinating Elohim spiritual beings that are there working in harmony with God. We don't have a lot of details on this. And then there are, the next would be cherubim. Cherubim, we're introduced to them in Genesis chapter three. They guard Eden so that Adam and Eve can't get back in. And these are, if you were thinking about um, touched by an angel and you think about an angel, you think about somebody who has a very pleasant Irish accent and smiles, maybe has wings and leaves a feather behind. Those are not cherubim, okay? These things are, and this one had the face of an eagle. And this one had the face of an oxen. These are these terrific spiritual beings. And then we have some unique named angels. Two of them that rise to the forefront are Michael and Gabriel, who seem to have some sort of uh, position of authority. They, they end up just kind of showing up all throughout the Bible, these two angels. And then we just have angels in general. By the way, the word angel, anhalos, simply means this, it means messengers. So when you use the word angel, you're using the word messengers. So what do they do? Well, here's what angels do. Uh, number one, they encourage. You find the life of Elijah the prophet and the life of Jesus after he's tempted, the angels show up and encourage. Secondly, they strengthen, okay? So there's, a, there's an Elohim force out there <laughs> that encourages you, 
that strengthens you. And thirdly, they communicate. Is there, that's why they're angels, they're messengers. They bring truth to us. Um, even Hebrews, super interesting passage where the writer of Hebrews says, hey, you should be nice to strangers because sometimes that stranger is a messenger from God, is, a, is an angel. And you, you've, he says, some of you have even hosted angelic beings in your home and you didn't recognize it. Kind of changes like how I'm gonna treat people in the line at the grocery store, right? What if there's an angel driving super slow down Rimrock? <laughs> so there are these interesting beings that exist out there. Here's where I wanna end because we can kind of become aware, open our eyes, but the most important thing is point number four is how do we deal with the devil? How do we deal with the devil? Let me give you several words that all begin with the letter R because uh, I want you to maybe remember them, okay? How do you deal with the devil? Do we have to be afraid? Do we hide? Number one is this, realize that he exists. Be aware, but not afraid. Be aware, but not afraid. I think we have to get to the place where as I'm operating in my life and maybe I'm dealing with shame, condemnation, the accuser is accusing me, where if we're not realizing that he exists, we're like, yeah, that's true, I am worthless. I, no, I won't matter. Oh no, God could never forgive me. We have to get to the place where we go like, wait a minute. I remember what I read. There's a spiritual force who is trying to separate me from my creator. He's trying to accuse and slander and point out everything that is wrong with me. And I realized, no, 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 this isn't just me. This is the Satan. He's working in my life. So realize, number two in dealing with the devil, resist, resist. So you can partner or you can resist and he will flee. We're gonna read the scriptures, one of my favorite. If you're gonna memorize one on spiritual warfare, memorize this, James 4. Submit yourselves then to God. So I, I take my thinking, my past, my failure, my plans for the future, my sexuality, my ethics. I submit those to God. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay, how many people would love to make the devil run? Put your little fork tail between your legs, buddy, and get out of here. How do you make the devil run? Do you yell at him really loud? Do you have to learn some sort of incantation? This is, this is how you make the devil run. You submit your life to Jesus, the entirety of your life to Jesus. And when your life is submitted to Jesus, then you resist him. You're like, no, 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 no. I'm not going back down that addictive cycle. No, 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 I'm not gonna think that way. I'm thinking a brand new way. No, 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 I am indeed forgiven. I resist him and what does he do? He runs, he runs. So I don't live in fear, I submit my life to God. Then all I have to do is resist him and he's like, I'm out of here. This is pointless because this person realizes who I am and what I'm doing and their life submitted to God. I don't want anything to do with this. So you realize you resist. Next R is rebuke. 
rebuke. Rebuke with scripture. This is absolutely essential. If we went to Matthew chapter four, please read that sometime in the next couple of weeks. When Jesus is addressed by the Satan, three different occasions, Jesus doesn't like call him dirty names, like get out of here. Jesus, as the Satan comes and brings a manipulation of truth, take this shortcut. What does Jesus do every time? Jesus quotes the scriptures. So what the Satan is doing is he's bringing a lie, a distortion of the truth. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, no, I'm gonna take your lie and I'm gonna replace it with a truth, not my truth, but a truth from the scriptures. My best defense is to be able to say, that is not true. This is what is true. Uh, let me give you an example. When uh, Jay and I first became uh, senior pastors of a church, we're 32, 33 years old, and I dealt with this profound insecurity, which was helped by people going, oh, I have a grandchild your age, you're so cute, and going to like citywide pastors meetings and people going, you were supposed to bring your senior pastor, not the youth pastor. And so it welled up in me, this, this, this insecurity that I'm too young, I'm incapable, I don't know enough. I just felt highly self-conscious about my age. What are you gonna do about that? Here's what I do about that. I read Paul writing to Timothy, who was a young pastor. And Paul said this to Timothy, do not let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers through your faith, your life, your love, and your liberty. I bet I quoted that scripture 20,000 times through the first 10 years of pastoring a church because I was constantly dealing with feelings of inadequacy and I'm not old enough and I don't know enough. And every time I did it, the enemy's lies that you're not sufficient were addressed with God's truth and the devil runs. But I did it over and over and over again. When you're feeling like I'll never change, God couldn't love me. You know what Paul says to his friends in Corinth? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and something new has been born. That's the type of scripture you just repeat to yourself thousands of times when the enemy says you're insufficient, you're inadequate, you'll never measure up. No, 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 no. That lie is real, but here's the truth. I have been made new. That my past has been dealt with. That I am forgiven, I am a new creation. So rebuke Satan, not by yelling at him, but replacing his lie with God's truth. God's truth. Recognize his future. It's my last R. Recognize his future. Romans 16.20, this, this is what we read. The God of peace will soon crush, by the way, this is mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, thousand years before, will crush Satan. It doesn't say under God's feet. He's writing to the, the people in Rome who are followers of Jesus. And he says, Satan will be crushed under your feet. So here's the important thing. We do not need to be afraid. You have the capacity to make the devil flee. You do not fight for victory. We fight from a position of victory. I could read over and over about the doom 
of the Satan. He is doomed. So like the misunderstanding we can have is kind of like Star Wars, okay? There's the dark side and there's the force. And depending on like who's active, oh no, the force is really struggling. Oh no, here comes a new Jedi. Oh, it's like this back and forth battle. That is not what we're talking about. God has defeated the devil. He is influential. He makes noise. But we fight not for victory, but from a position of victory. I want to end with just this verse. I love this. This is from 1 John. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. So I can, I can be a partner. I can choose not to resist him. And I can be a partner. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning, whenever that beginning was. The reason the Son of God, that's a title for Jesus, the reason the Son of God appeared was to thwart, inhibit, slow down the devil's work. Uh-uh. Why did Jesus come? To destroy, to break the power of, the influence of, to destroy the devil's work. Here's what I would love for you to do. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, I want you to think about this. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Brokenness, shame, hatred, unforgiveness. We could just go on and on and on. Jesus came to destroy that. You read the four biographies of Jesus' life. He does these things. He teaches people truth. He heals physical sickness. And the third thing, he chases away the devil. Demons like run from him. They no longer have their power or influence. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil to keep us separated from God. You and I, when we join the assignment to be disciples of Jesus, you too get to destroy the work of the devil. Through forgiveness, we destroy hatred. Through love, we destroy division. Through submitting to him, we destroy pride and arrogance. We're involved in a real spiritual battle. But you don't have to be afraid. The battle's been won. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.